If you would turn to Luke chapter 7, this is the passage we'll be looking at this morning, the 7th chapter of Luke. Verses 18 through 35, Luke 7, 18 through 35, we are continuing our work through this gospel. Luke 7, 18 through 35. The the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news to preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this passage in Luke chapter 7. We thank you that the Bible is often an honest reflection of the events that came to pass, the hard ones, the complicated ones, the ones where we see sin and failure, and all of this true and clear points us to the Lord Jesus. So I thank you that we see more of him in this Luke chapter 7 this morning, we pray that your spirit would work in and among us to declare your word to our hearts, that we would be sanctified and that you would be glorified. We love you. 
And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning is Palm Sunday. And it's the Sunday in the modern church calendar that we remember the events leading to the entrance of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. That's the reason why the kids are getting the palms when they leave from here. They'll be waving the palms in the hallway. We remember the events that we read from Matthew chapter 21 this morning. As you think about those events remembered on Palm Sunday, I think you have to admit they're really peculiar. Really odd, strange things that happened when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. You see, as we read in Matthew 21, or we'll find in Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel, or in the, the gospel of John, when Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem on the back of this colt, this donkey, the people are there and they begin to say, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And they take off their jacket. And they cut off these branches and they lay them on the road as if to say, here comes the king. And then you read in the next line in Matthew 21 that the same people said to one another, who is this? See how weird that is? As if to say, yay, here comes King Jesus. And oh, by the way, who are we cheering for? Why all the hosannas? What's going on here? And if that's not strange enough, a few short days later, the Bible says it was those same people who were saying, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And the question that Palm Sunday revolves around is the question of Jesus, who is this? Who is this Jesus? You could imagine those people gathered on the road throughout the whole storyline of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, they're the ones who are saying, who is this Jesus? And then as time went on and and he's in Jerusalem, he's not accomplishing what they thought that he would, they're saying, who is this Jesus? And then he's presented to them by Pontius Pilate and they're saying, who is this Jesus? But as strange as Palm Sunday is, Luke chapter 7 is like ten times stranger. Because this isn't the people on the road to Jerusalem. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, the one who leapt in his womb when he came in contact with Jesus, the one who's found in the desert preaching the good news, the one who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's The guy who at the beginning of Luke 7, verse 18, is saying to his followers, listen, go find Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the one? Or should we expect another one? And your mind's kind of blown, like, what just happened? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and are you the one? He is coming and he is here. And I baptize him. And oh, by the way, is is there another one coming or is this it? But you see, what's happening in the life of John is so important for understanding Luke chapter 7. What has happened since we found John in Luke chapter 3 preaching in the wilderness is that John, proclaiming this message of fire and brimstone, 
The king is coming to judge the people. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. The winnowing fork is going through the hay. I mean, he's coming to bring a judgment. And then John is arrested and he's thrown into prison. And he's thrown into the most isolated prison uh, that you could ever find in Palestine at this day. I mean, it was the worst of the worst. And after these events in Luke chapter 7, just shortly after this, Luke would be, uh, John would be beheaded. And so you see what's happening with John is that all along the way, John has been saying, well, this is not what I expected. Uh, this is not the way I thought things would go. This is not the Jesus that I thought would come. I could imagine him even getting to the prison and saying to the uh, prison guards, guys, listen, Jesus is my cousin, okay? And he's coming to make all things right, and he's going to get me out of here. He's going to take care of the things you're doing right now. I know it. This is what Jesus is coming to do, make wrong things right. But now John, having seen his expectations of Jesus meet the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do, John is beginning to ask questions. And so he says of Jesus, are you the one? One commentator said, John's dilemma is on the fault line of his unmet eschatological expectations. That is to say, John expected that Jesus would do something finally different than he actually witnessed Jesus doing. And as Jesus' path is going this way, and he's laying down his life, and he's submitting himself, and he's serving and not being served, John is saying, wait, wait a second. This is not what I expected. You see, that provides us the background for what's happening in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Because if you understand that, you begin to understand the conversations that Jesus is happening in this passage. As a matter of fact, there's a little bit of comedy that you could find in this interchange between Jesus and these followers of John the Baptist. So the followers of John the Baptist, John tells them, listen, go ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And the followers of John the Baptist are probably saying, what are you talking about, John? I thought we covered this already. I mean, this feels like something that we've already dealt with. But yes, we'll go ask Jesus. And they arrive there, and you imagine them coming to Jesus and be like, you ask him. No, you ask him. No, John asked you. You ask him. Okay, and Jesus is like, okay, just ask me the question. What is it? And they say to Jesus, listen, this is not our question. This is John's question. We're just the messengers. Okay? Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we expect another? And Jesus, in only a way that Jesus could do, He doesn't answer their question, does He? Did you catch that? Verse 21. They ask Him the question, and then there's nothing. Jesus moves on, and what does He do? It's as if He turns from these two men, and He says, you want to know if I'm the one. And then He just begins healing people. That's what it says in, in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. You get the picture? In that hour, it's like healed, healed, healed. You're healed, healed, healed. You can walk, you can see, you can hear, healed. That's Jesus' answer to the question that the two men have just asked. And then as they're standing there, they're watching, they're thinking, okay, like, we get it, we get it, we see it. 
Jesus turns back to them and he says to them, listen, what you have seen and heard, just go tell John. Just go tell John what you have seen and heard. And I tell you the truth, this answer that Jesus gives is more powerful than anything that he could have ever said in the affirmative. Yeah, Jesus could have said, am I the one? Yeah, go tell John, yes. But what he does is he begins healing people and, and, and he quotes here in verse 22 from Isaiah the prophet. This is from Isaiah 35, okay? In Isaiah 35, Isaiah the prophet says, when the Messiah comes, this is what he will do. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. That comes right out of Isaiah's uh, prophecy in chapter 35. And so Jesus says to the followers of John, all right, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He understood the prophecies of the Old Testament. He says to the followers of John, listen, watch what I just did and just go describe it. And John will know, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I am the one who is. I am the Messiah. It's a, a, a beautiful way that Jesus has of answering the question. But the passage this morning, again, it revolves around this question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? You think of John the Baptist. He had an expectation of who Jesus was. John expected that Jesus was the bust him out of prison Jesus. Okay? The people at Palm Sunday expected that Jesus was the, I'm going to go into the city and knock some heads together Jesus. I'm going to turn some things over. Knock down a few walls. Show them who's boss Jesus. That's the Palm Sunday Jesus. And the question as we read this passage is, what are our expectations of Jesus? What are the ways that we, we come to Jesus and we say, this is who you're going to be, Jesus. And if we can have you like this, we are satisfied. If, if we can conform you to what we believe you ought to be, then we'll be happy. The, what, Jesus, what John the Baptist expected of Jesus, what the Palm Sunday crowd expected of Jesus. You think about the things that we expect of Jesus. Many of us expect that Jesus is just going to prosper our businesses and our careers, right? That's, that's the Jesus that we want. It's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Okay? Many of us expect that Jesus isn't going to let His children or His brothers and sisters suffer and encounter trials, Right? That's the Jesus we want. That would be good, wouldn't it? But that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Many of us, many people in the world, conclude that Jesus is a really great teacher. And our expectations of Him, our expectations of Him, they say that you know, Jesus has really taught us the good way to live. And if we just live as Jesus demonstrated, then we're good. Right? That's our expectations of Jesus. He says, this passage this morning deals with our expectations. And when, as sinners always do, when we come to Christ with our expectations and we're confronted with the real Jesus, with the Jesus of Scripture, the question then is simply, what's our response? How, how do we handle that? What do we do when our expectations are met with the real Jesus? 
You see, in this passage, Jesus goes on to just explain that there's two categories of people. There are only two ways to respond when confronted with the Christ of Scripture. And this passage describes them as two different groups of children. Isn't that funny? Two different groups of children. Jesus loves to use the analogy of children. He does it often. And in this passage, he says, listen, there are children of this generation. They're the children in the marketplace. They're depicted in verses 29, 30, and 31. Then there are the children of wisdom. They're the ones that get the short line in verse 35. Okay, there it says that wisdom is vindicated by all her children. But Jesus' picture is that in response to the real Jesus, there's only two things we can do. They are summarized in verse 29. In verse 29, it says, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Okay? Now we're starting, Jesus is starting to draw two categories. He's delineating the lines. He's drawing the boundaries. And on one side is all those people at the beginning of verse 29, and the original language says all those people and even the tax collectors, okay? You remember how bad the tax collectors were? They were more hated than even murderers at this time. It's weird, I know, but the tax collectors were hated. All of those people and the tax collectors declared that God is just, and they were baptized by John. Now, the other side is the Pharisees and the lawyers, okay? Now, for a second, just this passage has this, this depth in the original language, the, a richness that doesn't come out in the English. So let me just tell you this. As we look at the tax collectors and the people, okay, it actually says they declared that God was right. right? And just is another way of saying that. But I, I, I think it was even more clear if we read it that God was right. The people baptized by John who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are basically saying, yep, God is right. That's Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and God is right. He is true. He has done what He has said He would do, and here it is before our eyes. And they're just kind of like, we accept it. We see Jesus, and we accept Him for who He is. Now, you've got the Pharisees and the lawyers on the other side. They're the ones who are represented by this, this uh, posture of life that says, I can do it myself, okay? And what it says in the original language there, it uses the Greek word boule, now, that sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? Boule. It's spelled just as it sounds. Boule. It means the immutable, unchanging plan. Okay? And what the passage actually says is that the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the immutable plan of God. They rejected the unchanging plan of God. And you see the picture that John is, uh, Jesus is painting is, is very simple. When presented with the real Jesus, they have said, we want nothing to do with the unchanging plan of God. In their minds, they're probably thinking, well, we'll go another route here, okay? We'll, we'll find another way to accomplish this. But, but the commentary here under this passage would be that it is actually true of them that they've rejected the only plan. That it's the immutable, unchanging plan of God. It was Jesus Christ, and there is nothing apart from Him. And so the Pharisees and the lawyers have said, well, I guess we'll take our chances elsewhere, and there are no chances for them. And Jesus then 
takes the Pharisees and the lawyers and he begins to explain what they are like. And if you look at verse 31, he says this, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And that, that's Jesus saying like, okay, what picture can I give you? How will I describe the children of this generation who see Christ and they say, no, that's not the Jesus I want. How do I, how do I compare them? Well, this is what he says. Uh, what are they like? They are like children who are sitting in the marketplace and they're calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Jesus says that the, the people of this generation, they're, they're like children in the marketplace. And you get this interesting picture of children in the marketplace, okay? There's, there's a song here that's quoted. It sounds as if this is a song that they might have sang during this day and age, okay? And the children in the marketplace, they would call to the other children, I'm playing a song, now you dance, okay? I'm singing a dirge, now you weep. It was like the Palestinian version of Simon Says, okay? So you could write it there right next to verse 32. This is like Simon Says. And, and the people of this generation are saying to Jesus, Simon says, raise your left hand, and Jesus is not raising his left hand. Simon says, pat your belly and rub your head. Jesus is not patting his belly and rubbing his head, okay? The children of this generation, they want Jesus to conform to their image, to conform to their likeness, to be as they would have him to be, and Jesus would not. And so Christ says in verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he's a demon. Jesus says, look, John came in the desert eating locusts and honey. He wasn't feasting, and you said, that guy is crazy. He must have a demon. And then I came, and I came feasting, and I sat down to eat with people, and you said, that guy is a glutton and a drunkard who has community with sinners. You, you see the picture? They were never satisfied with Jesus as he is. They were always wanting the Jesus as they would have him to be. That's the children of this generation. Now, as you think about the examples of this in our world, there are the low-hanging fruit. There are the easy examples, and I'll give you two, okay? You can think about the Jesus of the social gospel. The Jesus of the social gospel is a, is a people group who take Jesus from the Bible and they say we will conform him to the issues that we believe he should be conformed to. And so Jesus becomes a social warrior. He becomes only a person who came to reconcile people groups. He becomes an advocate for organizations that work to abolish poverty. He becomes all about this world, and if they can see Jesus in that image, they're happy with him. They're satisfied with that Jesus, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, let me give you the opposite example. You think about over-spiritualized tribalism or nationalism. I can give you an example of this. I saw a picture this past week, and it was uh, an interesting picture. In the picture was Jesus, and behind Jesus was the cross, okay? So that's not the weird part. I mean, I, images of Jesus, not a big fan of that, but the picture of Jesus, the cross behind him, and draped over the back of Jesus was this big American flag, okay? I, I'm as patriotic as the next person. I love my country. But that is a conforming 
of Jesus to our likeness and image. And if He can be that, we say we'll be satisfied with Him. But that's, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. I'm sorry if you have that picture on your wall at home. I've offended you. I'm sorry. But that's true. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. He's one who's been twisted and contorted to fit your world, to fit your sinful lifestyle, to justify who you are, to make you feel good about you instead of satisfying some righteous demand of the Father. Now, that's the low-hanging fruit, the easy example. The question is, in our hearts, how do we do this? in our own personal space, in the, in, the, in the areas where people don't usually get to perceive, the things that we are in the recesses of our own souls, how do we take Jesus and we conform Him to our image to make Him satisfy some desire for ourselves? And then if we can get Him to be like that, we say, we love you, Jesus. We're huge fans. We, we like that Jesus, Okay. That's the thing that has to challenge us. We all do that in different ways, but the Bible confronts us with the Jesus of the gospel. And you know what the most terrible thing about conforming Jesus to your likeness is? The most terrible thing is that Jesus came to do so much more than that. He didn't come to satisfy social demands. He didn't come to only bless a particular country or group of people. He came to satisfy the wrath of God, which must be poured out on sin, of which we're all partakers in. We're all sinners. Christ came to establish His kingdom, which is not a kingdom of this world. Otherwise, He would have called 10,000 legions of angels to His defense. His Disciples would have taken up a sword to defend him, but it was not. And so when we reduce Jesus to the Jesus that, that fits our mold, we're too narrow-sighted, uh, too narrow-minded, too near-sighted. We, we're too close-minded. We have, we have no idea the beauty and the majesty behind the saving work of Christ. Now that people of this generation, is compared to the children of wisdom. And you see, they're the ones described by the people and even the tax collectors who said, yeah, God's right. We see Jesus for who He is. And they get one little final line in verse 35. It says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, this is kind of interesting. It says a lot about this group of people Okay, because there's a whole bunch of verses dedicated to the children of this generation. There's examples, uh, and there's songs, and there's these rhymes, and Jesus gives like four different examples, and they're talked about, but when we get to the children of wisdom, we get like six words. Because they are those who simply see Jesus, and they just receive and rest in Him alone. And there's nothing complex about that. There's nothing that needs to be explained. You see, in, in, in the Bible, wisdom is often described as a woman. She's Lady Wisdom. You pick up the Proverbs, you're going to read a lot about Lady Wisdom. And Lady Wisdom is always said to bring forth clarity of mind, to bring forth the wisdom of God, and to give us a clear understanding of the Most High God. Those are the products, those are the children of Lady Wisdom. Now, what you hear Jesus saying here is almost this, there's a synonymous 
equating of children of wisdom and children of faith. That by the gift of faith, we become children of wisdom. That being given the eyes of faith, we perceive the Most High God. And we see Him and we say, yep, God is right. That is Jesus. He is the one. Are you the one? Yes, He's the one. I see Him. It is clear to me. And this is made clear for the children of wisdom. And it says that wisdom is vindicated by her children. She is made right by her children. It is her children, children of faith, who say, yup, wisdom is this. It is perceiving Christ for who He is. You see that in comparison to John the Baptist. He's wrestling over the question. In comparison to the, the people at Palm Sunday, they're, they're the ones saying, Hosanna, and then crucify Him. Okay? The, the children of wisdom, those who have been given the eyes of faith, they see clearly Christ. And they say, yes, indeed, God was right. Yes, indeed, God was right. If we are children by faith, children of wisdom, then we receive Christ as King over and against our expectations of who He might be or who He ought to be. We receive Him just as He is. Yes, God is right. He's the One. He's the Messiah. This is, if you didn't catch it, this is Jesus' last words to John the Baptist. Okay, you go back up near the top of the passage. And when Jesus first sends these messengers back to John, uh, he says in verse 22, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And then he says in verse 23, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's Jesus saying the very same thing. The person who says, yes, God is right. Yes, I have clearly seen Jesus is also the one who says, I am not offended by the gospel. I am not offended by Jesus. The Greek word is skandaliste. Skandaliste. And you know what that sounds like. Scandalized. It's where we get our English word scandalized. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. Who is not offended by me. When you see and read about Jesus in this gospel, and you hear of His miraculous work, the most miraculous event, His death and resurrection, when you hear about that Jesus and you see that, what do you think about Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Who is He? Do you wish that He was different? Do you doubt the authenticity of His words and actions? Do you find some offense with Him? Do you treat Him in a scandalous way where you can say here, yay for Jesus, but when you go out into the world, Jesus cannot be seen in you? That would be the one who's offended by Christ. Do you shrink away when the world tells you how insulting your archaic view of life is? How you need to stop being so closed-minded? Or do you say, yes, God is right. Yes, God is just. Yes, He is the one. Jesus is King. As Christ said, the poor have had good news preached to them. We have had good news preached to us. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, this Palm Sunday. We know it's one Sunday in, in 52. And we know that you've gathered us together here to worship you this morning, but as our attention is cast on these events that, that lead up to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, we pray, Lord God, that we would not be as the people in the streets who declare you as king and then only a short time later who say crucify you, who deny your kingship and refuse the lordship that you have over our lives. We pray, Lord God, that we would see Christ as king and that you would anchor this truth within our hearts that by being joined by faith, to Jesus Christ our Lord, that He would be the anchor of our souls, that even as we have our doubts and as we waver and struggle, that Your Spirit would cast us upon Jesus, that we would rest in Him, that we would be satisfied only with Him, that You would show us the ways we twist and contort Jesus to fit what we want Him to be, that instead, Lord, we would take Jesus as He is. And that we would see the beauty of righteous demands, a load too heavy to carry, a weight too great for us to satisfy, that we would see these things satisfied in Jesus that we would have thanksgiving and gratitude in our hearts for Him who has saved us. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name we ask all of this this morning. Amen.